Welcome to Scientific American's Science Talk, hosted on August 31st, 2015. I'm Steve Mursky. This past week, Scientific American celebrated the 170th anniversary of our first issue, so we had a little party. More on that in about eight minutes. First, Jimmy Carter has been in the news of late due to his announcement that he's fighting metastatic cancer. Back in January, the former president and 2002 Nobel Peace Laureate spoke to Scientific American Editor-in-Chief Mariette Cristina at the American Museum of Natural History in New York City. Thank you very much, President Carter, for for being with us today. And the first thing is today we've, um, you've just made some announcements about uh, the Carter Center's work in guinea worm and the progress since you began working on that in 1986. Can you speak to that for just a minute, how that's going and, and what remains to be done? Well, we began the eradication of guinea worm from the face of the earth in 1986. Well, we found the disease in 20 countries, three in Asia and, and the rest of them in sub-Saharan Africa. Uh, when we began to complete our survey, we had been in 23,500 villages and we found three and a half million cases of guinea worm then. Uh, last year we had 126 cases, so now we know every person on earth that has guinea worm and we monitor them very closely and we expect uh, guinea worm to be the second disease in the history of the world to be completely eradicated from the face of the earth. So we're very pleased with what's going on and it's still got a bigger challenge because those last 126 cases some reason they haven't been eradicated yet so they are quite intransigent and cost a lot of money and effort to get those last cases done so guinea worm is, is a horrible disease it's uh, an ancient disease it was known in the bible as the fiery serpent and so we have been uh, very pleased so far at what the people themselves have done We've gone into individual villages, told them what causes the disease, drinking bad water with guinea worm eggs in it, and what they can do about it, which is primarily to use filter cloths and so forth to take the eggs out of the water before they drink it. I know it's a challenge to uh, to get to the end with that, and um, that reminds me of another very challenging area that I'd like to ask you about, which is mental health care yes. and the Carter Center's efforts in that area, and specifically what we can do to, uh, what, what are some of the uh, next steps we can take to try to address mental health concerns globally as well? Well, I would say that my wife, Rosen, is the number one uh, expert on mental health and world leader on it. She has a, a large group of uh, women who help her, and also uh, some of them are queens, some of them are first ladies, some of them are incumbent presidents of countries. And uh, Rosen has also seen that one of the key problems here is the misinterpretation a misrepresentation of mental health by the news media. So a number of years ago, Rosen began to train reporters for magazines, newspapers, television, and radio on how to report accurately on what is mental health, uh, how you can bring about mental health from, in, from sick people, and what needs to be done about it. So she not only does that in this country, but also in other countries like South Africa and, and, and uh, Mexico and Colombia, all over the world. So she brings in reporters and, and teaches them, and then they go back and write good things, accurate things about mental health. She's also started a program, for instance, in Liberia of training mental health nurses, because Liberia has been through 16 years of uh, civil war. They have a lot of PS, PTSD and so forth, mental health problems derived from the long civil wars. And so Rosen decided, since they only had one psychiatrist in Liberia, to train 144 psychiatric nurses. 
And those nurses have now completed that training. At this moment, they're helping with Ebola. But when the Ebola crisis goes down, they will go back to concentrating on mental health. So those are the kind of things you can do. Train people that are expert in it. Let reporters give it accurately, picture of what mental health is, and convince people that it's a, it's a disease of the brain, in most cases, and, and with successful treatment and an absence of stigma, the people that have mental health can be cured and lead normal lives. This reminds me also, um, you had recently, and speaking of Rosalind in particular reminds me of this, you had recently announced a, uh, a dedication, well, we've always had a, a focus on this, but a dedication yeah. in particular to women's health issues. Yes and um, fostering those uh, at this point and, and what we can do to, to do that. Why, why, not, why that and why now? Well, the worst human rights abuse on earth that's not addressed is the abuse of women and girls. And quite often this takes the case of uh, health care. For instance, uh, in Egypt, for instance, where, where female circumcision is a crime, about 90% of all the females living in Egypt at this moment have been uh, sexually mutilated at, at, at an early age. In some, in some countries it's 97 or 98 percent of all the women have. And uh, child brides uh, are another very serious problem. Children eight or nine or ten years old being sold into permanent slavery to oppressive uh, uncaring husbands. This is another serious problem. So, and, and then when a country uh, has people that are very poor and they can't afford to give good food or health care to a large number of children, the girls are the last ones that get the uh, food and the care and the opportunity for educational health care. So uh, almost everywhere in the world where there is discrimination, the first people who suffer from discrimination are the little girls. Mm -hmm. And that carries on throughout their life as a female. I think um, it's interesting to me, I'm sort of reflecting as you're, you're talking about some of the very intractable problems that you have been addressing through the Carter Center, whether it's um, horrible diseases like uh, guinea worm or river blindness or mental health issues, which have often, uh, people where people have often suffered from the stigma associated, and now uh, women's health. One of the things that impresses me about addressing those intractable issues is your focus on um, measurable outcomes and mm -hmm. evidence-based thinking. How, how could we, you know, are there any lessons you'd like to share with the audience about how can we foster that kind of thinking well, for this success? Is, this is especially important to me. <clears throat> I guess I, I'm an engineer, I'm a, I studied, did my graduate work in nuclear physics, and, and when we began the quarter set, I wanted to quantify everything. So I can tell you exactly how many people have guinea worm. I can tell you the names and addresses of everybody that has guinea worm in the world. I know exactly how many people will treat this year for ripple blindness. 24 million, as a matter of fact, more than people who live in New York State. Uh, I know exactly how many remaining cases there are of trachoma uh, in the world. I know exactly how many latrines we've built to do away with the flies that transmit the disease. So we, we quantify the problems still remaining and the successes we've had. And this is very helpful in a practical way with me because when people give us money at the Carter Center to do these things, we can go back a year later and say, this is what has resulted from your contribution. We've improved the situation in these particular countries. So why don't you give us a little bit more money? So it's, it's, it's a selfish thing to do, but also I think it makes it a, a kind of an extra stimulus for our health workers, our volunteers, the people that are on our payroll temporarily and our permanent doctors and so forth that take care of these problems, they know that they have to prove to me when they say we'll make it real progress against trachoma or lymphatic filariasis or schistosomiasis or things like that, that they can actually show me 
by statistics, by proof that they've made this progress that they claim. I like the idea of, uh, of proving the benefit, and if people wanted to know more, they can go to cartercenter.org, right? Exactly, yeah, and, and every, every one of the diseases I've mentioned, including how many, how many bed nets we put up to prevent malaria and lymphatic filariasis, they can go on the Carter website and see how many bed nets we've helped to build last year. Well, thanks so much, President Carter, for your time. I really appreciate it. I look forward to seeing continuing progress that we'll watch for proof of Thank in you the future. Much. The first issue of Scientific American was published by Rufus Porter on August 28, 1845, which means we just had our 170th birthday. So we had a little party at our office, which featured artifacts from our history. One of our guests was Stephen Lamazow. He's a neurologist who happens to have put together one of the most incredible magazine collections on the planet. And as an MD, he has a particular fondness for science magazines. He brought some of his best stuff to our gathering. Tell us what we have here and how you came to uh, possess it all. Well, what I brought with me is basically a compendium of early American science periodicals, the most important and first issues of all the major uh, magazines that came out from the beginning to uh, probably the early part of the 20th century. I'd like to have the first and most important issue of every magazine ever published, and clearly Scientific American is among them. So I have brought with me today a first volume from 1845, all the original Rufus Porter issues, plus a first issue of the original wrappers of the supplement issue in 1876. What were the supplements? Supplements were were put out as an additional publication at the time for for the centennial. And, and it was supposedly only going to be for a year or two, but it actually, they, there were two publications of equivalent size uh, until the 20s when, when this went out and merged into the main Scientific American. And then I brought along the first issue of Popular Science Monthly. And this is from 1872. 1872. And here is the first wow. American scientific journal ever published, the American Journal of Science, edited by Benjamin Silliman, who was a... Uh, who was a, a geologist from Yale, and you can still sit in Silliman Hall. This is still being published. The American Journal of Science, and what's the date? 1818. 1818. And this is in the original wrapper, so it's kind of... So this is some of the things I brought. This is a, this is a copy of the Franklin Journal, which is a, one of the most important American scientific journals, from the Franklin Institute in Philadelphia, which is still alive. And this particular issue is very important because it's from 1839 and it has the first description of the daguerreotype process ever published in America. There were two there were two men who sort of co-invented photography, Daguerre in, in France and Fox Talbot in England. And in fact, the first American mention of photography was an article by Fox Talbot in, in April or May of 1939, uh, 1839 in a journal called the, um, called the Corsair. And really interesting what they would do, because we didn't have the Atlantic Cable at that time, so what they would do is they would send out a very fast packet boat from New York to meet the steamer that was coming over regularly, and, uh, and they met up, and then the packet boat would, would speed back to bring the news as fast as possible to, to scoop everybody. And one of the articles that they brought in on that date was Fox Talbot's Talbot's article 
called the pencil of nature, announcing, announcing the beginning of photography. And uh, how fast was the fastest you could get information between the, uh, the two continents? Not, not very fast at all. As fast as the winds let you do it. I, I don't know exactly what the... But it wasn't... Obviously, until the Atlantic Cable, we had nothing. I think it was 1845 was uh, Cyrus Field and the Atlantic Cable. So until then, it was just get the fastest boat across the ocean. So they, so they figured out a system to get, to, get the, to get it here faster by sending the boat out, a fast boat as fast as it can go, for the limited distance, meet the steamer, and room, uh, maybe they met him in Newfoundland or something like that. You know, you know obviously there's hundreds of periodicals issue, published every year, but this is just sort of a compendium of, 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 of the major scientific ones. My home is filled with hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and thousands, actually, 7,800 items on my on my on my database of of of, of every every genre of American periodical from every era about history, science, anything about American popular culture was first, it was first done in a magazine. And, and for people who have never seen the original Scientific Americans, it's a broadsheet, so it looks like the size of the New York Times today. Exactly. And, it, and, and what's impressive about it, it's actually very high-quality paper. Which is why it looks really good right. after all these years. Content paper. It's not the not kind of newsprint paper that's used today with high acid that, that would crumble. So many, many 18th century periodicals are in very good condition because they used a much higher quality of paper than, than they do now. Yeah, I mean, the paper is still almost white even. Exactly. Exactly. And the first volume is very rare. These are all the issues that Rufus Porter... Uh, edited himself, and then he, he soon sold the magazine. He maintained the editorship, but he sold the ownership of the magazine. This is great. Well, somebody pointed out something very interesting to me. There's, there's a month gap between the eighth and the ninth weekly issue because there was a because there was a port there was a fire in Porter's house, and he couldn't put out the magazine for a month. So the ninth issue says, "Okay, we're back." Really interesting. I wasn't Did, aware. Didn't of you have all the files saved in the cloud? <laughs> I was. I was amazed, but but when somebody pointed out to me, and sure enough, there, there there's a month gap between the eighth and the ninth issue. Very interesting. Yeah. Well, we, we certainly hope we don't have any more fires, but if we do, we will probably still publish that month. I would imagine so. This is great. Thanks so much. Thanks for coming and bringing all this fabulous stuff. You have a website sure. where they can see images. GreatAmericanMagazine.com. Uh, AmericanMagazineCollection.com. My blog is MagazineHistory.blogspot.com. I've been writing about this for years, so uh, please, uh, lots of lots of wonderful stuff on there. That's it for this episode. Get your science news at our website, www.scientificamerican.com where you can also check out our September issue devoted to Albert Einstein and the 100th anniversary of general relativity. And follow us on Twitter, where you'll get a tweet whenever a new item hits the website. Our Twitter name is at Siam. For Scientific American Science Talk, I'm Steve Mursky. Thanks for clicking on us. <laughs>